And then we get to chapter 14, 15, and 16, where we find ourselves uh, today, where Jesus, is, he uses the last I am statement saying, I am the vine and you are the branches. You've got to depend on me. You've got to rely on me. And Jesus can't stop talking about the Holy Spirit. With everything that he could be saying, it's, it's as though he's just, oh, he's so excited about giving the gift of the Spirit that he, he keeps bringing up the, the helper, the, 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 the parakletos that will be coming. And so we pick up the story in John chapter 16, verse 5. Jesus says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus says something quite shocking in verse 7. He says to them that it is to your advantage that I go away. He's telling his disciples that it's actually better that he won't be there for them moving forward. The title for today's message is... The advantage of Christ's absence. Probably feels weird just writing that at the top of your sermon note. How could it, how could it possibly be an advantage for Jesus not to be physically present with his disciples? We, we often talk in our Bible studies with our Bibles in our laps and our pens and our highlighters. And we're talking about a certain story and we often muse and wonder. We, th- we say stuff like, you know, it just would have been cool. I just wish I would have been there to have seen this, you know. Or sometimes when we're on the phone with our friend and we're really struggling with something, we're just, man, I just wish that Jesus were physically here, that I could physically look into his eyes, that I, could, that I could see him perform some sort of miracle or give me some sort of word of encouragement directly to me. We often think that it would be advantageous for us to be in his presence, his physical presence. But Jesus tells his disciples, no, 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 no. It's actually to your advantage that I go. He begins in verse 5 by saying, Listen, none of you are asking where I'm going. Do you see that there? He says, I'm going back to my father, and no one says to me where you are going. It's interesting because they had been saying that. In chapter 13, verse 35, Peter asked, or 36, Peter says, We, we don't know where you're going, Jesus. And then Jesus says, I'm going to the father, I'm going to prepare a place. He's, in, in this house, there's many rooms, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then Thomas 
um, speaks up in chapter 14, verse 5, and says, but, but we, don't, we don't know the way. We don't know the way to where you're going. And then Jesus says famously, John 14, 6, say it with me, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so he's cleared that up with them now. They know where he's going, and, and they know the way. They know that they need to trust in him. So Jesus says, you're, you're not asking me that anymore. In verse 6 he says, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. I just... I take great encouragement from that little statement that Jesus gives here. See, none of the disciples had said they felt sorrowful. But Jesus knew. Isn't that what we want more than anything? We want that in our friendships. We want that in our, in our marriage. We, we want someone to get us. We want, we, we want to just not, we, we don't want to use words. We don't want to send signals. We just want another person to have that connection, to actually get us. Loved ones, here's the good news. Jesus gets us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. This should be encouraging for all the men in the room, because oftentimes we don't know how we feel. We might know how we think. But oftentimes we're super out of touch with how we're dealing with something emotionally. And Jesus here, looking at 11 male friends, helps them to emotionally process all that is going on. He says, I know that you have sorrow in your heart. He gets us. Verse 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The helper is Jesus' favorite term for the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of, of John. It appears a, a number five times actually just in this section that we've been studying over the last several works, w- uh, weeks. A helper uh, in Greek is parakletos. A para is a word that we use in everyday language. A paramedic is someone who comes beside to give medical uh, treatment. So para is someone who comes beside. And a kletos is the one who was called. So the helper, the Holy Spirit, is the one who was called to come beside. The one who was called to, to give us help and strength. And Jesus is saying, this is good news. It's good news that the helper is coming. You see, here's the thing. We just, we just went through Christmas, and oftentimes at Christmas we talk about how the Old Testament made all of these predictions about the coming of the Son of God, the birth of the King, you know, Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and Micah chapter 5, and this idea of this, this child that's going to be born, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and there's all of these predictions and prophecies. But listen, in the same way that there are predictions about the coming of the Son, The Old Testament is replete with predictions about the coming of the Spirit. It's interesting in the evangelical world, sort of in the non-mainline Protestant branch of the Christian tree, we emphasize really two what you call Christian festivals, right? We emphasize Advent and Christmas, and then we, we emphasize Easter. But somewhere along the lines, we forgot about Pentecost, 50 days after, which is, which is a celebration, which is the coming of the Spirit. It's on May 31st in 2020. I'm sure none of us knew that. We, we probably have an idea of when Easter is. But we don't, we don't emphasize the coming of the Spirit where Jesus, he was pretty fired up about the Spirit coming. 
Because the Old Testament, like I said, is filled with examples. Let me give, give you a couple. Joel chapter 2. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Isaiah 44 verse 3. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. It's going to be a major blessing when the spirit comes. Ezekiel 36 27. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When the Spirit comes, it's no longer trying to obey God's law in the flesh, which leads to futility, but the Spirit will actually help us to walk in obedience. This is what, this is what the Old Testament saints were longing for, not just the coming of the Son, for unto us a child is born, but the coming of the Spirit who will be poured out like water. And the reason why Jesus came was so that the Spirit could come. And so he, he tells them, and listen, the Old Testament emphasis on the coming of the Spirit is, is, is one thing, but Jesus in his own ministry emphasized the importance of the coming of the Spirit. He told Nicodemus in John 3, 5, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The Spirit, is, it, it, it's the ticket in, it's the way to get into the kingdom. John 6 63, Jesus said, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Trying to follow God in your own human effort is no help. It's the Spirit that gives the life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then famously at the Feast of Booths, Jesus said in John 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The same Jesus who said our heart is filled with adultery and wickedness and lies and murder and envy. He says, no, I've come to change your heart. Your heart's going to be like a river that's flowing with living water. And what is he talking about? He says he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And remember, when, we, when the term glorified is used in the Gospel of John, it's referring to his crucifixion, it's referring to his resurrection, and it's referring to his ascension. Those three events are his, his glorification. And as Christ is crucified and then risen uh, from the dead and then ascends into heaven, he's creating the context in which the Spirit will come. So Jesus is explaining to the disciples why it's actually advantageous that he go because his absence really isn't his absence. His absence is just a, a deeper version of his presence through his spirit. And Jesus says three things about the coming of the Holy Spirit. If you look at verse 8 and verse 13 and verse 14, you see three he will statements. It says, and when he comes, he will convict. And then in, in verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide. And then verse 14, he will glorify. So those three he will statements, those are the three things Jesus wants to make clear to his disciples and wants to make clear to us. Would we all agree that there's a lot of misunderstanding and misrepresentation of what the spirit does and who the spirit is? 
And so Jesus is clarifying that before the Spirit comes, he makes it clear to the disciples, you need to watch for these three things. If you want to know if the Spirit is working, you need to make sure that these three things are happening. Here's the first one. We're going to spend most of our time here. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world. This is really interesting because everything Jesus has been saying about the Spirit up until now has been about what the Spirit will do in the believer, in the disciple, in the person who has already trusted in Jesus. 14, 16, he's going to dwell in us. 14, uh, 26, he's going to teach us. 15, 26, he's going to bear witness about Christ and help us to bear witness. But now the tables are turned. The Spirit is not simply working in believers. He is also working in the world, and he's working in the world to convict the world. I already mentioned that the Spirit came to be a witness, just like we're a witness, but the Spirit is not just the witness in the courtroom, the Spirit is also the prosecuting attorney. Because that word convict, other times in the, in the New Testament when that word is used, it's used to, describe, to, to, be, to reprove someone or to rebuke someone. It means to convince someone that they're wrong. You know how Jesus in Matthew 18 sort of says, hey, if someone offended you and they don't realize it, he says you're supposed to go to them and it says you're supposed to tell them their fault. Explain to them how they offended you. That tell them their fault, that's the same word here, convict. So the Holy Spirit is going to do something in the world. He's going to convict the world. The Spirit is not just at work in the believer, he's also at work in our world. He's going to convict the world in three ways. He lays it out in verse 8. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Then in verse 9, he unpacks what he means about sin. Verse 10, what he means about righteousness. And verse 11, what he means about judgment. First about sin, verse 9. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. They do not believe in me. If you were to uh, go out uh, this afternoon into the Walmart parking lot down there on Argentia and just start interviewing people and ask them, what is sin? Some people might say, fun. Uh, Some people might say, uh, bad deeds. Some people might say, uh, uh, something that religious people say we, we shouldn't do. Jesus gives us a really clear definition of what sin is, that the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin. See, the essence of sin has to do with belief. What do you believe about God? When Satan slithered into the Garden of of Eden and started lying to Adam and Eve, it it was... it wasn't just a moral question of should they eat the fruit or not. No, it was, a, it was a theological question. What do they believe about God? Is God holding back from them somehow? I mean, all the evidence would suggest that God is a giver. He created this planet. He put them in the garden. He gave them all the trees. Why would it make any sense that we would think that God would be holding back? God's a giver. But they didn't believe that God was a giver. They believed that if they ate the fruit, they would become like God. That God was somehow holding back. On them. The essence of sin is unbelief. No matter what sin it is, a tiny little white lie or the most heinous thing imaginable, if you follow the fruit down through the branches, down to the trunk, underground to the roots, at the root of every sin is unbelief. Jesus says that we, the Spirit's got to convict the world. They've got to understand that sin is unbelief. 
It's unbelief. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The church at Rome was all confused about food and, and Sabbaths and days off and holidays and drink. And Paul boils it. He, he, all of those fruit issues down to the branches, down to the trunk, underground to the root. He says, listen, sin is about unbelief. If it's not coming from faith, then it's sin. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So Jesus gets to the root of what sin is, unbelief. And the converse of that, the, if the root of sin is unbelief, then the remedy of sin is belief. The way to escape the consequences that we deserve for our sin is to believe in Jesus. And that should come as no surprise to us as we've been studying the Gospel of John. That that's the whole thesis of this book. John wrote this book so that we would believe. The word believe occurs almost a hundred times in this Gospel. It's hard to read a single, a single paragraph without the word believe lump, leaping off the page. So the, the, the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin as it relates to belief. Then it says, concerning in verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Why is Jesus going to the Father? Why can Jesus go to the Father? Because he is righteous. Only the righteous can go to the Father. No one can dwell in his holy hill. No one can come into his presence. Unless they are righteous. Jesus is the only righteous one. If you were to go out to that same parking lot and ask people, you know, what is sin? And then you would turn around and ask a follow-up question. Are you a good person? Most people would say, yes. Yes, I am. And then you would ask them, well, by, by what standard would you determine that you're a good person? And so they, they might quote some commandments. But chances are the reason why they're thinking that they are a good person is because as they compare themselves to their neighbors and as they care, compare themselves to the celebrities that they follow in the news or in social media, they seem like they've got it pretty much together. That they are a good person. They don't lie as much as other people. They're, 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 they're more responsible than other people. They're kinder, they're friendlier than other people. They're less judgmental than other people. But Jesus says, no, he's the only righteous one. He's gone to the Father because he's righteous. If you think you're going to, at the end of your life, that you're going to stand before God and, and give this reason about why you should get into heaven, that's not going to go well for you. Jesus is the only righteous one. You see, the problem is, we're using the wrong standard of measurement. And we're not just talking about imperial or metric confusion. We're, 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 the, the whole thing is backwards. Earlier this fall, two of my sons are playing hockey now, and so I volunteered to be an assistant coach on either of my son's team. There was a shortage of coaches. I am head coach of both. <laughs> and so it's been a while since I've played in men's league or since I've played with other guys, but so I, I'm doing a lot of playing with 9 and 11-year-olds. And I got to tell you, I feel pretty good about myself. They're still learning how to skate backwards and how to raise the puck. And I'm, I'm ripping around out there. They think I'm amazing. And I tell you the truth, sometimes I think I am too. 
But listen, if Sheldon Keefe were to give me a call and say, you need to get on a plane, get down to Florida, you got to play the Panthers tonight for the Leafs, that would be a whole different story, wouldn't it? That's a totally different standard. And sure, if we look to the right or look to the left and compare ourselves in terms of righteousness to this person or that person, we can feel pretty good about ourselves. But if we look up to Jesus Christ and the way that he loved and the way that he served and the way that he cared, we all fall short. Like Romans 3 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. Jesus told us about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone, everyone talks about the Sermon on the Mount like this is, you know, Jesus told us this is how we're supposed to live. Now, spoiler alert, right at the very beginning, Jesus says, none of you can live like this. In, in Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He takes the most devoted, the most religious people on the planet and he says, that's not good enough. You must be at least this high to ride and none of you are high enough. Jesus says, I'll, the Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, because I am the one who is the gateway to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Isaiah 64, 6 puts it really graphically. It says, we all have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds, the good things that we do, the things that we're planning on telling God at the gates of heaven so that we hope we'll get in, he says all of these things are like a polluted garment. No one is righteous. The Spirit brings that kind of conviction. And then thirdly, judgment, verse 11 Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Jesus said the same thing in chapter 12, verse 31, when he got off the donkey and, and, and when, when the people were screaming and cheering that he was king, he said, the ruler of this world. He said, I am the king. I'm the rightful king. And the ruler, not Caesar, not Pilate, Satan is going to be cast out concerning judgment. You see, at the end of the day, there is, this, there is this ultimate judgment that is going to happen. And it's not, it's not what Caesar, or it's not, it's, it's not what, what the rulers of this present world think. At the end of the day, all that matters is what Jesus thinks. Jesus has already made it clear what he thinks about Satan. And he's warning us, the Spirit warns us about the judgment of those who follow Satan's way rather than Christ's way that Satan has been cast out. And in the day of judgment, those who don't trust in Jesus will be cast out. So Jesus makes this conviction, or this prediction about conviction that the Holy Spirit will, will perform. And we have really clear historical evidence that exactly what Jesus said would happen, has happened, and is happening. Think about Acts chapter 2, verse 37. The Spirit comes. There's fire. There's wind. There's different languages. Peter gets up and preaches the first Christian sermon. Look at the response. Now, when they heard this, when the world heard this, the same world that hates the disciples that Jesus warned about in chapter 15, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? They were convicted. 
about sin and righteousness and judgment. That was the content of Peter's sermon. Now, was Peter a more effective preacher than Jesus? We also be saying, no. <laughs> no, he wasn't. Well, what's the difference here? We, we don't see Jesus preaching and 3,000 people saying, what do we got to do to be saved? What's the X factor? What's the variable in the equation? It's the Spirit. The Spirit not only at work in Peter, but the Spirit at work in the world, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is how the church got started. And this is the ultimate aim of the church. I talked about all the confusion and misunderstanding and misrepresentation about the Spirit in our contemporary church today. A lot of that was happening in Corinth. And the Apostle Paul was trying to address this church that was so divided. The Spirit is supposed to unite. And yet they were tearing one another apart. And so in the book of 1 Corinthians, he's teaching them about how spiritual gifts are supposed to work. And he, he puts in chapter 13 this emphasis on love. And then he caps it off at the end of chapter 14. He says, this is the point of the Spirit working in the church. This is what's supposed to happen. He says, if all prophesy under the power of the Spirit, and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. It's how the church started in Acts 2. It's how Paul instructed the church. This is what we're aiming at. So we need to understand this. First and foremost, there's a lot of confusion about the spirit that I'm hoping to clear up today, but we need to get this. The Spirit is evangelistic. When we talk about the Spirit, it's not just warm, fuzzy feelings for us as Christians when we gather together. If we are going to be a people who are individually led by the Spirit, He is going to lead us to unbelievers to share the gospel with them. If we are going to be a church that is experiencing the power of the Spirit in our meetings, a lot of people have a lot of ideas about what that's supposed to be, but if the power of the Spirit is going to work here, it's going to mean that unbelievers are going to come here, and they're going to hear the truth, and they're going to be convicted. That is what the Spirit does. He will convict the world. If we're filled by the Holy Spirit, then the Spirit will lead us to lost people. He will convict the world. Secondly, he will guide the disciples. These next two will come quite quick. He will guide the disciples. In verse 12 he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus knows. He knows that they're grieving, they're experiencing sorrow. It's really difficult to process information when you're under emotional stress, especially when you're grieving. There's, there's the fog of grief. And so Jesus, again, he gets us. He, he gets his disciples and he says, I got more content, but you've got information overload right now and you're not able to grasp it all. So the Spirit is going to guide you. He says, verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you to all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are uh, to come. So he says, he's got, he's, got, he's got more content, but the Spirit's going to deliver it. The Spirit is called the Spirit of truth and he will guide his disciples into all truth. Now, this is not a, a passage of Scripture that we are supposed to re receive directly. Jesus is not speaking directly to us. We need to understand the context here. 
When Jesus told Judas, what you were about to do, go and do quickly, he doesn't mean about like your afternoon chores, although your parents might appreciate that. That's not directly, he's speaking to Judas. Judas had something to do. And so when he's telling the disciples, the Spirit will guide you into all truth, he's not talking to all of us, he's talking to the disciples. The disciples are going to be guided into all truth. He'd already said that the Spirit was going to help them remember everything that Jesus had said. So the, the Spirit's going to help the disciples look backwards, but also he's saying the disciples are going to help them look forward. That there's going to be new content that the Spirit is going to reveal, even about the end times. In, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, we get a good description of this, of Peter who was present at this meeting. It says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit of truth guided them in truth. So we can pray before a Bible study. We can ask that the Spirit would guide us into truth. We just need to understand that's not the same way the disciples were guided into truth. John's going to say, or Jesus is going to say in John 17, sanctify them in, in your word. Your word is truth. This is where we find truth. The Spirit guides us to the word. The Spirit guides us to the Son. The Spirit's going to guide us to the truth, to the one who is the way, the truth, and of the life. He'll guide the disciples. Verse 13 says he's going to show them the things that are to come. Peter's present. All the things he writes in 2 Peter about the end times. John, who's writing this, he's present. Everything he's going to write in the book of Revelation about the things that are to come. Yeah, it is advantageous that Jesus goes, but the truth is he's coming again. And the Spirit helps us understand those things and teaches us those things. So the Spirit will guide the disciples. And then lastly, the Spirit will glorify the Son. The Spirit will glorify the Son. Verse 14, he says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. How do we know if the Spirit is working? He'll convict the world, he'll guide us to the truth, which is the word and the son, and he will glorify the son. Lots of people have different opinions about how you know that the spirit is working. Signs and wonders, uh, miracles, uh, warm feelings, great music, gold dust. Jesus tells us, right, right, this is how we know that the spirit has come. When he comes, he will, he will, he will. And the ultimate sign that the Spirit is working is that the Son is glorified. Jesus, it's so interesting how the Trinity works. Jesus is always talking about the Father. The Father goes to great trouble at Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration to say, listen to the Son. So the Spirit is talking about the Father. The Father's talking about the Son. Now Jesus is talking about the Spirit. He can't stop talking about him. The Helper, the Helper, the Helper five times. And, and what's, the, what's the role of the Spirit? To glorify the Son. To glorify Jesus Christ. The way that we know that the Holy Spirit is working is if Jesus is being glorified. That means if Jesus is being treasured, if he's being lifted up, if he's being worshipped, if he's being obeyed. A whole bunch of other things can be happening. But unless the Son is being glorified, Miracles are great, but we need to follow the biblical pattern. When there's a miracle, there's always a message. Even with Jesus' miracles, here's some bread, 5,000 people. By the way, I am the bread of life. 
In that miracle, the Son was glorified. The attention went on the Son, not on the miracle. In the New Testament, all these tongues, all these strange languages, there was a sign, but there was also a sermon that glorified the Son. Is the Son being glorified? That is how we know that the Spirit is working. And I love what he says. He says it twice. Verse 14 and verse 15, he says the same, same thing about the Spirit. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is what the Spirit does. He shows us all that Christ has. All that Christ is. All that Christ has accomplished. When the Spirit works, we don't say, oh wow, it's the Spirit. Or, oh, wow, look at the miracles. Or, oh, oh, wow, look at that great experience. Oh, wow, look at how I feel. No, no, no. When the Spirit works, we say, oh, wow, Jesus. When the Son is glorified. Jesus is glorified in the coming of the Spirit because what was once local is now global. We study the Gospel of John and Jesus, he only, he only traveled like a, within a within a a sphere of, of maybe 100, 150 kilometers or so. Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and repeat. But he said, when the Spirit comes, you'll be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. You see, when Jesus was just local, when he was here in person, he could only be in one place at one time. The biggest hint came in, 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 in chapter 4 when the official came all the way from Capernaum to Cana, the distance of 22 kilometers, and Jesus healed that man's son remotely. Every other time, Jesus was one place at one time. But now the Spirit, the, the, the Spirit can show all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has. He can declare all that belongs to Jesus from Mississauga to Milan, from Georgetown to Cape Town, from Orangeville to Osaka, and from Brampton to Bogota, north, south, east, west. God's heart has always been for the nation. And it began in the nation of Israel, his people. That's where Jesus' ministry began. But by the Spirit, it is spreading to the ends of the earth. And here's the other amazing thing. Not just from the local to the global, but from the outside to the inside. I mean, Jesus is sitting there with his closest friends. And they're sharing this meal together. They thought, there's no way that I could ever feel closer to Jesus than I am right now. And Jesus is just like, watch this. Because I'm not, I'm not just sending the Spirit to be with you. I'm sending the Spirit to be in you. And yes, I am physically going. But that Spirit of truth is the Spirit of Christ. It's the Spirit of the Father. That's why Jesus can say, when you go to the nations in Matthew 28, when you go to the nations, surely I am with you in the Spirit to the end of the age. And that's what the Spirit does. He, he always gets our eyes on Jesus. I love how Charles Spurgeon sums it up. He says, It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. For he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, our feelings. 
It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking to Jesus. Loved ones, Jesus has gone to be with the Father. You can't look at him physically, but that is to your advantage. Because the Spirit enables us to look at him and to see all that the Father has given to him. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is truth. We thank you that your Holy Spirit guided John to write this truth that we have just studied, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to live by this truth, that we would not grieve the Holy Spirit, but that we would be led by the Spirit and yield to the Spirit and submit to the Spirit, God. That we would allow the Spirit to guide us and to teach us. That we would allow the Spirit to declare to us everything that you have given to your Son. And it's in your Son's name that we pray. And we pray, Lord, that your Son would be glorified in our eyes and in our lives as the Spirit of your Son dwells inside of us. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.